Hello, and welcome to the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. Today's guest is somebody who I admire greatly. He's a legend in our industry. Amir Karanji is the publisher. He's a film producer. He's the founder of our real estate Bible, The Real Deal. Amir, it's an incredible honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for participating. Thank you for having me, Michael. Uh, like I said earlier, I'm a fan of your show. So oh, You're very kind. You're very kind. Amir, I'm going to jump right in. So your family escaped Iran and emigrated to Europe. I'm the son of a Cuban immigrant father. And I think that, you know, the children of politically displaced families learn a drive, which is almost difficult to explain. Would you agree with that assumption? 100%. You know, there's a I never forget, I was having this uh, dinner like 10 years after I had the real, started the real deal. I was fairly established and I was having this dinner with this, uh, uh, this guy who is a big time guy in, the, in, uh, you know, in real estate and I was having dinner with him. He was like, what's your biggest worry? Like, uh, I was like, well, that I'm going to lose everything. And then I'm going to have to like move back in with, uh, you know, move back to Brooklyn and, you know, you know, worst case scenario, of course, he was like, you know, you don't have to think like that anymore. You know, he was like, he was like, it's, it's, it's a feeling. It's a thing I hear from every immigrant is that they're always worried for the bottom to hit. And that's because the situation I was in that I've seen it happen before. And I'm sure you saw it happen before in Cuba, but in Iran, everything was going really well. My parents, myself, we couldn't imagine anything happening. We had a very comfortable life there. And uh, all of a sudden over literally overnight, everything changed. So I saw it happen before. All of a sudden we go from having a house to having a, you know, to having a, somebody help around the house and all that stuff to like living out of a suitcase for, you know, uh, for 10 years. So it was uh, that, that sort of mentality is always in the back of my head. And I'm sure as a Cuban, you can agree with that. It's always the idea that tomorrow isn't guaranteed. Right. And it's that sense that exactly what you were saying, you had everything and life was just going along. All yeah. of a sudden, it's not. Very much like right now, right? Like right before the pandemic hit, everything was going great. And you didn't think anything could happen. I mean, of course, there is the normal market fluctuations, but nothing like this. You never know what can happen. So that as an immigrant, like that, like when the pandemic happened, I'm sure a lot of immigrants out there were like, aha, I knew it was coming. I, knew it was coming. <laughs> I told you. <laughs> <laughs> So before we get into the real deal, tell me about the early days. How did you get started in publishing and really the entertainment industry also? Yeah. So in, uh, you know, I went to school for journalism, so it was always a passion of mine. And then when I moved to New York, I worked for Yahoo. And uh, that's when the internet was really booming and uh, more like bubbling. And, <laughs> then, and then all of a sudden everything ended, like the whole tech bubble burst and it was a disaster. And I couldn't find a job in uh, anywhere. Like I was looking for job. I was literally waiting tables and seeing my old clients come into the restaurant. Wow. And, but you know, I, I, there's something, I don't know what it is about me. I was actually really proud of it. I actually liked the fact that my old clients saw me waiting tables. It made me proud some way. I don't know why some people would be embarrassed by it, but I, I really wasn't. And, uh, but still, I was like, look, this is not working out. I got I to gotta get out of town. So I went to sell my apartment. I had a, a part, a bought an apartment in Brooklyn. And I, didn't, I bought it because I didn't want to pay rent in the city. And uh, 
I had not realized what had, had happened to the market, but the uh, value of the property had gone up. I wasn't in real estate, uh, but the value of the property had gone up three times, you know, by 300%. And I was like, this is not bad either. Like I'll buy from the Brooklyn, because back then the internet was not so widespread. So I was like, I'll buy from the Brooklyn market and sell to the Manhattan market. And I did that for several years. And, you know, the margins on it, they're very, very high. Uh, it's, it's amazing what a lack of information can do for people who can take advantage of it, right? right. So, like, I think that's the thing with hedge funds. That's the thing with finance. Like, if you have information that other people don't, you, if, and you take advantage of it, and you know what you're doing, you can, uh, you know, do well with it. And I think that applies today. But now, information is so much more widespread that... Uh, you know, that you have to work harder for it. You got to read more, you got to look more and you got to ask more questions. So, but, uh, so I, when I went to sell it, I, I, I made, uh, uh, I, I started doing other sort of, uh, apartments and townhouses buying in Brooklyn, selling to Manhattan. <clears throat> and then all of a sudden there was this one deal that wasn't supposed to go through because the people in the condo board saw that I was a flipper and they didn't want that. And I, I don't blame them. You know, people like that, uh, that, you know, they, they don't care about the property. They just want to make money off of it. But the owner of the property told me after the meeting was done and they turned me down for the uh, unit, he was like, uh, you, do you think that this property has more value than what I have it listed for? He was like, because I've had it listed for like six months and you're the only person interested in it. And I was like, yeah, I think it's, a, it's at least 20, 25% more uh, in value. And he gave me the keys. He was like, well, do whatever you want with it. Here are the keys. I'm in North Carolina. He was like, um, whatever you sell it more than what the listing price is, you keep it. I was like, this is even better than the other deal. So, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of the renovations myself with some crew members and we sold it in three weeks for 80% more than what he had in the market. Come on. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, it was. I mean, it, it, we sold it to a young family coming from Manhattan. And again, we were just marketing to the Manhattan audience. We were buying from local Brooklyn brokers and selling to the Manhattan brokers and the, the audience. And it sold for 80% more. And all of a sudden, I was like, well, you know, this deal wasn't supposed to happen. Let me use the money from this deal and start a magazine. Uh, let me get back into publishing and journalism because that's where my heart was. And I used the money to start the real deal. And, uh, and that, that, that's where the money came from. And, you know, that was uh, not enough money to start a magazine. But um, so I went around and I put together a pitch book and I told people my idea that I wanted to, like all the publications out there, there is no real journalism on real estate, like real coverage covering the different beats. It was very fluffy. It was like the real estate coverage was very fluffy. The New York Times didn't have dedicated people writing real estate. The Wall Street Journal had one real estate reporter that did one story every two weeks and it would be random. It would be like Oregon and Kansas and yeah. maybe DC. And I was like, you know, real estate is hyper-local. You need like information to cover these individual markets. So I started out with New York and I, my goal was to cover the entire universe of real estate in, in New York, commercial, residential, development, financing, the whole lot. And uh, I put out, uh, I went to different people to get money from them. And there's a big uh, trade publisher named uh, Cranes. And I went to Rance Crane and I said, hey, I have this idea. You, you literally have publications on waste management and on plastics and like all sorts of stupid stuff. But 40% of your advertising is from uh, real estate people. 
and I and I have this idea for a real estate publication. And he was like, "Well, it's never going to work because uh, there's nothing to cover for real estate. There's no news." I was like, "Well, because nobody's covering it. No right. one's no one's ever covered real estate uh, the way that we're talking about." He was like, "Yeah, there's just not that much activity, and they're you know they're not interesting people." So thank God he said that. Uh, and I came and I couldn't get the money, and I was like, "You know what? Screw it. I'm going to do it myself." Wow. And I put it. Uh, I and I never you know I was 28 years old then, so I didn't have uh, I didn't have a lot of money, and this you know the money that I had was very important to me because I had earned it myself. Sure. But then all of a sudden I'm writing these big checks for. I'm writing these big. They were probably going into a black hole and there was probably a good chance that I was never going to see this money again. I felt okay about it because I, I, I really believed in the idea. I totally didn't think, I, I never wrote a check, you know, a checks those size in my life before, you know, like, and like all of a sudden I'm writing a check for $20,000, writing yep. a check for, you know, $15,000. And I was like, oh my God. Um, and I never thought, I never thought, oh, I'm, I'm losing it. It's done. It's going to black hole. I was like, okay. And I just remember writing those and thinking to myself, why don't I feel weird about this? Why, I, why am I not scared that I'm going to lose this? But I, because I really believe that I, this, is, this is something that people need and this is information and news that it will be appreciated. And, you know, I, I was right about it. So that, thank God for that. And you know what? But you had also done it before. Right. So you lived in Madrid and Paris and Mexico and you had like a really global view, right, of how you saw things. And so in Baja, you did a publication yeah. that was focused for expats called yeah. South of the Border. Right. And then yeah, we did that right out of college. So that was okay. I did that right out of college. As soon as I finished the school at the, in Boston, yeah. across country. And I had this idea for a magazine for Southern California that was supposed to be like New York magazine or the Washingtonian or the Bostonian, but S Southern California didn't really have anything like that. So I had a, I designed this magazine called coastal review. And I, the, the idea was to cover the social scene in Southern California. And, you know, I didn't know how to go to invest three years old. So I didn't know how to go to people and get investment. So I was like, where do you go get money for ideas? The bank. <laughs> So I would like walk into like a Chase Bank. I'm like, who do I talk to about this? I have a great idea for a magazine. And then people are like, okay, kid, you need to go like uh, go go get some experience. Like no one's gonna give you money or anything like that. But I was really determined to get that publication up. So I thought, you know what would be like? Where do people go to for cheap things? Mexico. So let me go to Mexico and find cheap printing. <laughs> I go to Mexico. And I find that uh, actually printing is a lot more expensive in Mexico than it was in the U.S. because they didn't have the technology for it. And it was very limited of what they could do. But what I did find was that um, there was about 100,000 expats, Americans, whether they were, you know, felons running from the law or retired <laughs> people or people who just wanted to have an easier life in Mexico. There was 100,000 of them that lived within about 40 miles, 50 miles of the border. And I was like, and, and about 90% of them didn't speak any Spanish. So, and so I thought, hey, I started an English-speaking uh, newspaper for those uh, expats. And, uh, and it, it worked. You know, we, it caught on. But I had to live in Mexico. I, I had, to, I had a, a house in, uh, in uh, Rosarito. And then I also had an apartment in Long Beach. And we were printing it and producing it in California. Oh, and my then gosh. Driving it down. Uh, taking about 12,000 copies and literally handing them out in like hot spots 
to people. But it was basically Mexican news that was translated into English. So everything that was happening locally on the border towns, we would do it into, uh, we translate it into English and distribute that. And it worked out great. And believe it or not, I would get amazing advertisers. Like you guys are too young to know, but like there was a, a telecom company called MCI and AT&T and companies like that. And, and there's a big uh, gambling hall called uh, Caliente in Mexico and they became an advertiser. So it, it, the idea actually worked and it was very encouraging. I just didn't want to live in uh, Mexico. And my printer, who was this uh, older lady, she said, I really like the idea. I have a couple of homes in Mexico and I want to buy the paper from you. Wow. And she bought the paper from me for $60,000, which at the time I thought was all the money in the world. And uh, I was like, you know what? I'm going to take this money and I'm going to start another newspaper in Washington, D.C. I was like, why be in Mexico? I'm going to do it in D.C. Yeah. Turns out it, it was a lot tougher to do in D.C. <laughs> do it in Mexico. In Mexico, there was a real you know, focus, the audience for it. There wasn't any competition. In DC, I had plenty of competition. The audience wasn't focused. But even then, you know, the uh, DC city paper came and bought, uh, bought that. And I was like, you know what? I should go to school and learn about publishing. And I, I, I really like it. I want to learn more about it. So I went back to school to learn about publishing. And then I found out like within a few months that I actually knew more than all the professors there at that point, even though I was like only 23 years old. Like, and I told the Dean, I was like, I know any of the things that your professors are teaching here. And I told him my experience. He was like, I get it. He was like, do you want to take another degree or something like that? So, uh, th and then that was that. And then I came to New York after that. So in both instances, which I think was really interesting. So in DC, you found an audience that didn't really have a voice and the same thing in Mexico. So was that really important for you really when it was a conscious decision of creating something for someone that really didn't have a voice, you became that communicator? Well, it's also an easier way to market yourself, right? If I go into a field that there's other people in it, then I have to spend a lot more money to be heard. Where I go to a room uh, with nobody else, uh, you know, screaming the news, then it's very easy to be heard and I don't have to spend as much money. So uh, real estate happened to be that, you know, and in D.C., there was a lot of conservative news so the Washington Post was there and the Washington Times and, you know, other papers, but there was nothing like the New York Post in D.C. In D.C., uh, they didn't have any sort of tabloidy sort of paper. So I started a weekly tabloidy paper. That was fun. You know, we talked about yeah. crime. It was like the New York Post, you know, like yeah. all the crimes and stuff going on. So it was, it was a lot of fun to do. And it was very different from everybody else. And, you know, at first people insulted us, but then people like really liked getting it. And we saw that people like crime news. So we expanded it from two pages to four pages. And, <laughs> you know, it's uh, the advertising for it came because people were interested in it. I love it. It was it was the guilty pleasure, right? Like nobody will admit they read the New York Post in New York, but it's like it's everyone. Meanwhile, it gets more traffic than the, the Times, you know. <laughs> exactly. Right. All right. So now you're in New York. Now it's 1999. Right. You're in New York. You're working for Yahoo. You started investing, as you were talking about, with those properties in, in Brooklyn. How do you even sort of like figure that out? How do you figure out, okay, here's sort of like, I'll go to Brooklyn and buy properties and then I'll just get an audience in, in, in New York City, in Manhattan. How did that come about? Well, it's that the, the real estate part, it, it sort of worked itself out because uh, the markets 
is very honest with you. Like if, the, yes. if you're worth less, it'll tell you. If you're worth more, it'll tell you. But you just have to make sure that you reach the market. The market can't be like, you know, the wider, the, the fact of the matter is that if you put a property on the market and you reach the widest audience possible, you're going to get the, act, the best price. That's, the, that's a fact, right? So, and if you, if you put a property on the market and just go to your friends and family, you're not going to get the best price. So uh, that was the thinking is like a lot of the Brooklyn people just didn't, they were marketing to other Brooklyn people where we were, I was buying it and marketing it to the Manhattan people. It was a much wider audience. And the Brooklyn people would never think of spending that kind of money on a two bedroom or one bedroom. Cause they're like, why would I do that? Yeah. And I did, you know, in a matter of two years, I did 16 deals like that. So I would buy them and immediately go and flip them townhouses and uh, you know, uh, studios, one bedrooms, a whole lot. So now you're creating this incredible portfolio, right? And then now it's two years later, the world changes, right? Especially in New York. Yeah. And so how did that affect what you were building, both in publishing and real estate after 9-11? I didn't have any real estate before September 11th. So oh, got it. Okay. After September 11th. So what happened was that all of a sudden you have to rethink your position. Like yeah. when September 11th happened, it, you know, the morale of the city was in, in the dumps, you know, and yeah. we, nobody knew if uh, things could come out, what's going to happen. And the four months after September 11th, it was the four worst uh, months in record for New York real estate after September 11th, because people were saying, well, no one's going to want to live in a tall building again because they're going to get attacked and it's, the city was going to just go away. And then the four months after those four months were the best months in New York City real estate on, on record history. So they actually like really catapulted them, went up. And, you know, when I was flipping these apartments and stuff, it was great. I was making good money, but I was just not uh, fully happy because I was like, well, I'm not using my brain to its full capacity. I wanted like... I back into publishing and I want to get back into reporting. So, you know, there, I, th I think I mentioned it uh, earlier that like, you know, I, I did this one deal that wasn't supposed to happen, uh, that it did happen. And I used the money from that deal to, uh, you know, to start the real deal. So tell me this. So you, we now sort of now, you know, there was a lot of incentives that happened during, I'm born and raised in New York. So there was a lot of incentives that happened, especially for lower Manhattan after that four month period that you're talking about. Um, I remember there were a lot of uh, tax abatements that were coming down if you bought in downtown uh, Manhattan, especially. So there was a lot of things that were going on. And you're right. There was some great, great involvement that was happening there. So during this time now, 18 months later, you start seeing this activity happening and we're talking about information. And so when we're talking about now you starting the real deal, what niche were you filling besides just giving the, the industry that sort of information, but you were catering to a lot more than that. You had the ethos from your prior uh, publications where you were talking to an audience. What audience were you speaking to with the real deal? So I, I there was probably like, again, it was the real estate industry yep. and they were really fragmented. There, there was a publication called Globe Street. They just focused on uh, commercial real estate news. And then there was uh, Real Estate Weekly that also focused on commercial real estate news. And I never understood that. Commercial real estate was such a small audience right. and residential real estate was huge. And there was so much, so much more activity happening in residential real estate than, than in commercial. So 
I found those people to be in the commercial niche that they were missing out on this whole residential thing. But I didn't look at it that way. I was, I thought that they all went hand in hand. So I looked at real estate as a whole universe. And I was like, commercial impacts residential, it impacts development, it impacts, uh, you know, zoning and all this stuff. And I wanted uh, the real deal to be this thing that if you read an issue, you had a complete sense of everything real estate in New York City. And we didn't do any pay for play. We, we were very strong about our journalism. We we're very serious about it. And the, the other sort of uh, trade publications, they would do pay for play. Sure. And that was sort of known. And the fact that we didn't do it, people were always like, well, you're never going to last. You're not going to last in this kind of publishing if you don't do pay for play. I was like, I'd rather have the whole place burned down than to do pay for play. That, that defeats the whole purpose of being a news organization because then you're in somebody's pocket. That's right. <laughs> so in so less... Sorry, go ahead, Amir. So, so we kept it. Uh, we kept it hard news, and we covered the whole universe of real estate. And that whole universe of real estate was a. It's it was a different audience than the fragmented yeah. voices that were out there. Because now we're talking to everybody, and like the commercial guy is talking to the residential guy, and the banking guy is talking to the legal guy. So it was. Uh, it, 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 I it, I thought it was the right move then, and I was right about it. So now in less than two decades, you've now expanded into several cities with the publication and you truly are the Bible of our industry. What do you attribute that success to? The fact that everyone came to the conversation and you included everyone in that conversation? I honestly, the same thing I tell my guys is that if you create good content, people will be loyal to you. And the day that you don't, they don't have have a reason to be loyal to you. But if we always keep our standards and keep good content, especially now with the internet, People will find you. You don't even have to market it. Like so I don't have to spend the crazy money that some of these media companies are spending to buy social media eyeballs. Like I don't. We don't do that. We we always say like if you really want to get the readers, create good content and they'll come. They'll find you. Like yeah, b- build it and they'll come. You know. What I mean? <laughs> so like write well, uh, report well, and they'll come. So and that philosophy really worked and it still works. And I think it's truer now than ever before. I love that. But you're also multifaceted and you're such a lover of New York. You produced a PBS documentary on Costas Condilis um, called Building Stories. What inspired you about his story? I went, I I was at dinner with this guy who's a big developer and he was like, oh, I'm meeting uh, my uh, uh, architect after this. I was like, oh, who's, and it was like Costas Candos. I was like, I'd never heard of that name before. He was like, well, that's funny because he's uh, probably designed more high rises than anybody else in New York City. I was like, I, I was like, I've been doing this for 10 years. I've never heard of that name before. He was like, ask some of your developer buddies, ask them if they work with him. He was like, I'm pretty sure most of them have hired this guy. <clears throat> and then I went home and I did a search and I saw that Rosario Candela back in the, you know, in the 1800s, he had probably done more buildings, had designed more buildings than anybody else. That, that's what was on record. And, it, and he had done like about 40 or 38 higher uh, buildings in New York City. And that's a good amount of buildings. To yeah. do. I mean, if you think about it, Richard Meyer, who is a Pritzker Award winning sure. architect, he's only, for his whole career, he's only done two buildings in all of New York. So I, I look around a little bit and I see Costas has designed 88 high-rises in uh, Manhattan. And I'm like, that's incredible. I've never, never heard of this guy. So I reach out to him and uh, I was like, look, uh, I want to meet with you because I think it's, uh, it's amazing that you design all these buildings. We should, we should meet up. Maybe we should do a story on you. 
So I meet with the guy and I was like, you know what would be fun if we do a video of him? So I hired this guy, Tony Comas. And I was like, look, I'd like to do an online video of this guy, like a five minute video. And then Tony goes and spends the day with uh, Costas and comes back. He was like, Amir, you shouldn't do just a five minute video. This guy's fascinating. We should do an hour long video. And he was like, by the way, did you know that he's Donald Trump's architect? I was like, no, he was like, he literally designed every building that Donald Trump has done. Wow. I was like, I, I was like, which one? He was like, well, this one and that one. I was like, but that one was done by like, you know, uh, Philip Johnson. He was like, no, no, no. Philip Johnson just signed for it. It's even if you talk to Philip Johnson, he'll say, uh, you know, that uh, wow. building. And so he was like, we should do a full movie. I was like, well, let's not do a movie. Let's do like a 15 minute thing. He was like, okay. And he, he would go for a few days and we'd come back. He was like, and he would show me the, uh, cuts and stuff that he has. I was like, okay, let's do a full movie. And then I went to get money for the movie because, um, you know, it's, we had to, there was a lot of uh, costs involved with it. And uh, we couldn't get, we couldn't get anybody to invest in it, except that this one guy who was like really just trying to work with us and God bless him. He was like, look, I'll, I'll, I'll cover your costs, but I, I won't give you any money for it, but I'll cover your costs. Great. So uh, Andrew Heiberger, who owned town he came in and he covered our cost of the movie which was very good it allowed us to do the movie and then we threw this big party for it at the morgan library oh. and every developer in the city came to it like literally we had 700 people there oh. the, the theater only showed the seats 300 people but like everybody was there and donald trump came and he gave the intro speech and everything like that but everybody was there and then one of the guys who was there was also the chairman of uh, pbs um, uh, Jonathan Tish, who's also the, you know, they own the Giants as well. Yeah. And then, um, so he was there and he, I didn't know he was uh, the chairman of PBS. He was like, this is incredible. He was like, we have to get this on PBS. So the next day, um, you know, Tom Shapiro from PBS calls me. He was like, let's see this movie that everyone's talking about. And then they signed us for a five-year contract to air the movie, which was great. So that we aired it on PBS. So you got, you became yeah, a great producer. producer. I yeah, so that, that allows me to come. <laughs> that allows me to put it so, Amir, you've done so much. Tell me the greatest lesson you've ever learned in your career. Uh, I think just believing your, in yourself. Like, that's the thing. When I first started the business, and I would tell people the name of my business is The Real Deal, and people were like, that's such a stupid name. Why would you call it The Real Deal? <laughs> no one's going to take you seriously. <laughs> And I was like, I really wanted to stand out. And I think real estate and deals, they go together. So I started committed with it. And I, I really believe that like, if, if it was something that I really believed in, it wasn't not something that other people thought that I should believe in, but something that I personally believed in. And I was like, this is the right thing. This is the right thing. And I, I, I realized that a lot of people do that, that they hit a rock and they, it's not a great idea. It doesn't work out. So I realized that happens too. But when you're doing it, like I, the lesson was that like, even though it was like maybe a stupid idea or maybe there was all these reasons for it not to work, all these smart people who were in the business were telling me that it's not going to work. And I, I really still believed in it and write, you know, writing those big checks, it, it, it really stuck with me. And I, I really applied to everything. Like even now when I want to do a new project, I have, like, I personally have to believe in it. I personally have to have reasons to say that this is going to work. It, that's more important than anything else that, that anybody else can uh, tell me because that's really the only thing that keeps me going, you know, like if I personally do believe in it. And it's pr you've proven it to yourself time and time again. Yeah, it's worked. It's so, to work. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but you're also a professor at NYU for both real estate and media. What do you hope your students take away from your lessons? Uh, so actually, I'm at Columbia now. I'm a lecturer. Oh, you are? Uh, yeah, I'm an adjunct at the Columbia and a lecturer at NYU. But uh, so, you know, the, with the students, it, when I first had to teach the class, my brother is a professor, and I told him, I was like, what do I do? How do I teach a class? I don't know how to do it, but I really want to do it. And he said, you know, you got to go in there with knowledge. Like you have to go there with basic, like what you're ta- telling them, it has to be your knowledge and your experience. It can't be you reading notes or you like citing other people and referencing other people. He was like, you have to go there with like, and be comfortable sharing your experience that you think is going to be useful to them. So I really went in there with that mentality. And, uh, you know, at first I didn't think I could fill a class for two and a half hours but it turns out two and a half hours is not enough. You know, you know, it's a, it's a full semester, but like I combine two classes a week so that we do it once a week. So it's a two and a half hour class. And uh, it's, it's inspiring to see these kids, you know, like uh, the students are, most of them are so much smarter, just like evolution has created these like small, smarter, more capable kids. They come in there and they have so many more tools at their fingertips at their, at this young age. I mean, just the fact that you and I didn't have the internet when we were in college. So true. And, and do, it's like it changes everything. You know, they, they come at you with so much information and you have to be really prepared. The thing that I always try to tell them is like the, the stuff that I want them to walk away with is life lessons. And most of those guys at that age, they don't understand that, you know, things that you learn in school, you might really be able to like, you know, 20% of it or 15% of it, the rest of it's going to come from like your actual experiences. So I always try to share and like, I I try to have people to come in who actually have the experience to share with them. You always have different developers and bankers and investors come in and talk to them about like, what is, what the job really is like. And it's amazing, you know, like people want to go into hospitality because they, they think hospitality is so glamorous and stuff like that. And then like I would have like a Sam Nazarian come in and talk about how he started SLS and what he had to do and that he was yeah. busting tables and stuff. And it's like, look, if you don't have that go and, you know, if you don't have that go and you're not into it for the love of wanting to have a hotel or restaurant or whatever, then you shouldn't do it because it's really hard work. The margins are very tight. The only way you can make money is if you grow. So like, uh, unless you love it, you, you're going to be exhausted. You're going to be like, I don't want to do this. I, this is bullshit, you know? Right. So and like having them hear from those guys, I think it's very important. But last year, I had a Google's developer uh, came, a young Wu, and he came and talked to them. And uh, after the class, he said, Amir, you know what you should have these guys do? Because like the, the purpose of the class is that they, they're supposed to put together a pitch book to the investors. And then I have about three, four investors come at the end of the semester. Oh, wow. And every, everybody, everybody pitches to them. Sometimes they funded some of their projects, which is really wow. nice. That's yeah. Nice. So, uh, you know, uh, he came last time and he was like, I mean, this was great. But he was like, you know, these guys are young, uh, uh, bright eyed you know, fresh idea students, they're young people. You shouldn't ask them to do the same things we've always done. You should ask them to like really solve problems that the industry has. So this year we changed it, uh, the class where they don't get to pick anything they want to do. They're supposed to find uh, repurposing uh, ideas for commercial office space. Oh, wow. So everybody, everybody's project is to come up with different uses for commercial office space because you know, people are saying people are going to work from home. And right now, uh, 
you know, occupancy in, um, in Manhattan is at 15%, right? So that's a, you think about it, five, 500 million square feet of commercial office space in Manhattan, and it's at 15%. And for those of us in the business, we know that buildings are like living organisms. You know, you leave them abandoned long enough and they decay and they decay things around them and so on and so forth. So they have to be used, they have to be maintained and sustained. So, you know, these guys came up with these different ideas and I, I was not let down. I mean, they came up with, you know, some, they have some really winning ideas. Like uh, this group came up with an idea of uh, to turn commercial office space into farming, like in, in indoor farming. And that one square foot of indoor farming can produce 23 times more produce than outdoor farming. So you're actually saving land and space and you save carbon because you don't have to commute stuff from Iowa to New York. You could just go to 47th Street. And then uh, people had other ideas for like storage space and, you know, warehousing of computers and things like that. But uh, I, it was a great idea by uh, Young to, to do that. And, you know, so we're going to, I asked this, my, the dean of the school, they're like, I'd like to change the curriculum to be able for them to come up with new concepts and stuff. And they were all for it. So that, that worked out good. That's amazing, actually. And that really is full on purpose. It goes back to your 23 year old self going to school and saying, I'm doing more in publishing than I'm learning here. Right, right. Now you're actually inversing that instead of saying, here's real life. Let's get right. to the solutions. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's, and these guys are great. I mean, they want, they're all architectural students. So they're all interested in, you know, designs and concepts and things like that. And they don't let down. You know, they, I, I, I thought to myself, yeah, you know, I guess there's a reason why these guys are at Columbia. That's right. They're, they're smart kids. But, you know, I, I was mistaken because I, uh, I did a course uh, at an, uh, it escapes me, but it was like a regular college. And I, I, I did a course there too. And uh, it, it, those guys had amazing ideas too. They, they, you know, so it wasn't just because these guys were at Columbia or the other guys were at NYU. Sure. These people from University of Miami, it was at University of Miami. So these guys had amazing ideas too. I was uh, really impressed with them. Yeah, no, that's, an, that's amazing. And so I want to flip to another part of your personality. So sure. you've been honored by Mount Sinai and Ronald McDonald House and you do incredible things philanthropically. Can you share a little bit about those efforts that you've been working on? You know, when I first started doing this and I would see these people getting these awards and I was like, how does like somebody that busy have time to do all this philanthropic work? Yeah. It turns out like all they do is like, hey, uh, Michael, uh, we're going to give you an award and we're going to call all your friends to come and buy like thousand dollar tickets for some dinner. And that's, that's why you earned the award because like all these people will buy thousand dollar tickets. So it's not like I was at Ronald McDonald house and like feeding, you know, sick children or anything like that. It was because they were like, okay, this guy's running the real deal. Uh, let's have a party for him and have people come and, you know, buy thousand dollar chicken dinners. So it works. It's, it's a good system and it still works, but like, I really do wish, you know, uh, Later, like the the uh, the charities you mentioned, that's how they came to be. Yeah. But uh, later, we wanted to do more. We we're like, let's. You know, I was reading about how the city is really, especially in New York. In New York City, most of our taxes, real estate, goes towards education, right. and yet you can't send your kid to a public school in New York City. Why is that? That's it seems insane to me. And so we decided to pick a public school that needed a lot of help and, uh, you know, help them out. 
So we picked Washington Heights High School randomly. And at first we started with their basketball team and we're like, let's sponsor their basketball team and make them look really cool. Because they had like shitty jerseys and they didn't, you know, the coach was telling me, you know, I don't want to embarrass anybody. So, but he was just saying like, they they really appreciate this stuff. So he was, uh, so we're like, let's do the girls basketball team too. And then the principal was like, this is so generous. Why are you doing this? I don't understand why. Is this a tax thing? He was like, no. He was like, we, you know, as a company, we want to, we can't do everybody, but we, we sure. picked a school. Like, let's help the kids in the school. And then he was like, well, you know, if you really want to help, we don't have water fountains that work. I was like, you don't have water fountains in a New York City school. This is not like, we're not talking about Iraq, right? Like we're talking about New York City. Wow. In Manhattan, you have a public school and you have water fountains that work. He was like, no, and the kids have to go to the deli and buy water bottles for a dollar, which for some of them, it's um, it's tough. Yeah. And so we're like, well, what does the city say? He was like, well, we filed the paperwork three years ago, but they're so backed up. They haven't done anything. And I was like, well, let's let's get you new water fountains. And I, I went to look for water fountains and I thought water fountains are like going to be $20,000. What is the delay? Water fountains are like $1,000, you know? Oh, so you just need to install them and be done with it. And it was like the easiest fix. And these guys are waiting around for three years to go some bureaucratic machine uh, to get things fixed. And like, like screw it. Let's, like, let's start fixing little things in the school and get the school up to, because the kids are great, right? Like it's, it's in a, it's not in a wealthy neighborhood. It's in the Washington Heights. Yeah. And it, 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 I don't know what the problem is. Like, I don't understand why, how anybody in those areas is okay with uh, paying taxes and then having their kids go to a school with no water fountain or having jerseys for their basketball teams, who, by the way, were like, went to the semifinals of the city's championship and having like old jerseys and stuff like that. It was just so crazy. And you know, that stuff doesn't cost anything. And it was such a small thing to do. And it has such a huge impact on those kids. And it just makes you feel good. You know, and I, and that the next thing we're doing for them is buying them bleachers. Can you imagine having a grade A basketball team and your fans have to all stand around throughout the whole game? This is this is school is from the 1970s, man. Like it's insane that their fans don't have bleachers to sit in and they don't have any support. They don't have water fountains in the gymnasium. They didn't have it before, but so just like those things, and you know, and the principal was like, you know, this stuff is supposed to go through the city. But screw them. He was like, if you yeah. want to do something, you have here's the keys to the school. You can do whatever you want, and you know, uh, put in whatever you guys want. So instead of like having those chicken dinners, uh, I'm going to uh, the developers. I'm like, let's not do the chicken dinners. Let's actually let's write us the check and have it go straight to the school instead of having these parties where we see each other over and over the yeah. same. The yeah. same 200 people who see each other over and over again. Yeah. yeah. Let's do $5,000 and go see a basketball game together. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. That's even better. Right. Yeah. So it was, that was, and you know, some people are like extremely generous and they, they have the money to be that way. And uh, the problem is that it's so hard to find out who to give it to and who you can yes. trust and what, where the money is going to go to. And how it like you, you, you write it a dinner, you go to a chicken dinner, a charity event for $500 just the charity event itself is taking $250 of it. By the time you pay the people who are managing it and operating it, you know, that's another, like God knows what. So very little of it actually goes back to the charity. And, you know, it's an excuse for people to get together and have these dinners and I get it. And they think they're doing something good, but it's more a party for them than it is for the charity. You're right. Yeah. But you have people who are really generous that they just want to give it to a good cause. 
And, you know, when we told them, we talked about the bleachers to some of these guys, some of them are, are ready to write big, big checks for the school. When I explained to them what the school is going through, they just needed to know. They just need to know yeah. where is it going to go to, who's going to get it. And they were all like very open to it. So it was very encouraging to see that. I love that. It all starts with small steps, right? Where you make the yeah. larger difference. I love that. Yeah, your, eye, your, your eyes get bigger and bigger. You know, like you start with the water fountain, you go to the bleacher, and next thing you know, you know, you want to have change the food. Like the food they have in that school is just uh, terrible. Like I can't imagine that kids who go to Horace Mann or any of these other places are getting the same foods. And then you wonder why poor people or people in poor neighborhoods have such horrible uh, diseases and uh, you know health issues because since a young age you're feeding them terrible foods in their school. And in some cases, you don't know that the food's going to get any better when they get home. In some cases, it doesn't. In some cases, it gets worse. So at the okay, least... So it might be the only thing they eat. Right. So at least while they're in the school, you know that they're going to get decent food and they're going to get good water and they're going to get like the basic stuff. For those eight hours, you know those kids are going to be good. Yeah, you might start a new trend, adopt a school. Yeah, that would be good. Yeah, that's a good I'm idea. serious, actually. I yeah. love how this is. This is it all starts. I love that idea. That's a great idea. Yeah, I love that. And so I have one final question for you. Sure. So in your book of life, what is this current chapter called? The current chapter? Reinvention. You know, like I love that one. <laughs> because you have to be excited. I, I remember talking to this guy. He had a very successful business, but he was doing it for 20 years, which was I'm coming up on that threshold. And he was selling the business. I was like, why in the world are you selling this business? You're just starting to thrive. Yep. I mean, not just to start, but you're thriving and your business is growing and stuff. He was like, he's like, I'm bored. I was like, I was like, why? You're going to these markets, you're doing all this stuff. He was like, I he was like, hey, we're doing the same thing I did 20 years ago. He was like, there's just a market for it. He was like, but I was like, I'm just bored. I, I was like, I'd rather retire or do something else than to keep doing this. And I didn't understand that. And then, you know, it got to a place where I always wanted to add new things, go to new markets and do different things. And so now we're doing it. And now I'm realizing that, like, I, I was thinking if I was still doing the magazine or if I was just doing the news part of the real deal, or if I was just in New York, I would be really bored. You know, it's, right. it's good that I get to add new things. But it, for the last year and a half, two years, uh, we've been working on this project called TRD Pro, which is a dashboard, like a Bloomberg dashboard for real estate professionals. And it, you know, it has over like uh, uh, 270 market indicators for real estate professionals to be able to go click, you know, open up this dashboard in the morning and see exactly the market indicators they care about, about their markets and for their clients and for their business and for their investments. So we've been working on that for the last year and a half. And, you know, it, new projects like that are what keeps me excited. If I had to yeah. keep doing the same thing over and over after 18 years, you know, you sort of get, uh, you, you do get, no matter, yeah. no matter how successful it is, you get tired of it and you're like, I just right. want to do something different. So he, with TRD Bro and creating this dashboard, uh, this reinvention, because it, the whole, uh, you know, media uh, atmosphere has changed so much. You know, in 1970s, if you started a media company, you didn't have to worry about change until 2001, 2005. Right. Right? Right. Now, media is changing every couple of years. Every couple of years, all of a sudden, you thought this is the right way to do it. Uh, Pop Sugar talks about celebrities, sells for $75 million after three years. And then the company who bought it can't sell it for $3 million because of some algorithm change. 
So to be valuable to our audience and to maintain that way, we have, we have to have great content, but we also have to do more for them, right? So that they, they stay with us. They find us invaluable. And there is some truth to too big to fail or, you know, um, too known to fail. So it's important that I always tell my guys, we're, we're number one right now and it's good to be that way. But I tell you what you don't want to be is number two. Number two. <laughs> you're the number, what was it, Ricky Bobby? You're either number one, Ricky Bobby, or you're last. So uh, I really <laughs> believe that. <laughs> so, it's so true. So, you know, by coming up with these new concepts and keeping it fresh, I think it's, um, it's, uh, it's keeping it fresh for me and it's helping us grow as well. So. That's fantastic. Amir, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for this conversation. Thank you for your leadership in the industry and everything that you do. I really appreciate the time today. I appreciate that. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. And thank you for all of you for listening. This has been the Global Luxury Real Estate Mastermind with me, your host, Michael Valdez. 